Welcome to Park City's Presbyterian Church, the early service. Delighted to see you. You may remain standing as we come to the scriptures. We are going through 1 Peter and we'll have a single verse there and then we'll have a background passage that we'll take a closer look. First in 1 Peter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then going to the Gospel of Mark. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In this larger passage in Peter, we've pointed out each week that it is very much the force of the imperative, things that we are to do. In this instance, the exhortation is to watch and pray to be sober-minded in our prayers and in our conduct and to be self-controlled and disciplined. Because you see, Peter remembered a moment in his life when he was not in that frame of reference. He remembers a moment in his life that back when Christ was with him in the days of Christ's flesh upon earth, Peter, along with James and John, had been brought forward, leaving the eight behind. They had come forward a little bit with Christ to a place to pray. And Jesus had told them to watch. Their job was to stand guard. Jesus knew about what was going to happen. He knew that Judas was out there. He knew his hour was approaching. He knew that it was not going to be very long before he would be hanging on a cross and suffering an awful, 
awful death, that he would be cast from the presence of God, the Father. Probably at the time when Jesus prayed most fervently, Peter slept most soundly and the other disciples. And the Lord tried to get them to, to resist the flesh. They had eaten a large meal together just a few hours earlier. They'd been drinking some wine. That's when the Lord had instituted the Lord's Supper in the night in which he was betrayed. Just a few hours earlier, they had heard Jesus teach. They had heard Jesus pray the long high priestly prayer that he played, prayed. They had been with him in the upper room and now they were with him in a different location. Let me talk a moment about that location. Our scripture talks out, he says, and they went to a place. And then later in the text, it says that his hour had come. Here's the cosmic convergence of time and place. God is bringing about the fulfillment of all the promises he had made to save humanity. And it had moved forward through the centuries, through the millennia to an hour, a sacred moment of time in which it would be accomplished. And the Lord had given them a place. It's interesting if you study a little bit about Gethsemane, it was east of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and probably somewhere on the low slope of the Mount of Olives. It's called a garden. A garden usually implies an enclosure. It was a place of retreat, of respite, of some protection. And apparently Jesus had gone there many times before. In fact, it was from this very spot that he had commissioned the disciples a week earlier to go and find the little donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem triumphantly on. He had dispatched them from this place. And Judas knew the place. And that's where he was getting up his guard and on their vicious mission, they were making their way to the place. The place was the garden of Gethsemane. This was the place of safety and security, of retreat and repose. This was the place where David, King David, a thousand years earlier had fled Jerusalem when his rebellious son Absalom was coming after his head. David with his private party and a small group of people of priests and, and, and a loyal uh, military men and a few people escaped out of Jerusalem and went to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the place where David had found some retreat. This is where he wrote Psalm 3, where David says, I will lie down and I will sleep and I will rise again. <laughs> oh, does that sound like prophetic words to you? It does to me. Here Jesus is at the place, the place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane is interesting too, because the word really is a is a translation of Aramaic words, which means simply the oil press, 
The olives were all around the trees were a huge grove and there they would bring in the olives and they would press them in this little spot, this place. Oh, how appropriate. This was going to be the place where the most incredible pressure and burden is going to be laid upon Christ. He is going to be pressed down. His soul is going to be sorrowful even to the point of despair and depression. He's going to not just kneel in prayer, which we find in the related passages, but he's going to fall down in prayer. And he's going to plead with his father, let this cup pass from me. What cup? It's the bitter cup. It's the bitter cup of the wrath of God. Several places in the Old Testament, God had told the prophets to sum up the sins and bring them all together into a cauldron and boil them down into a mass to where it is so dense that it is, represents the sins of mankind and pour that into a vial, put it into a bowl, put it into a, a pitcher, a cup, and then cause the wicked nations to drink it to the dregs. That is the punishment of sin. And that's the press, that's the oppression, that's the burden that's being laid on Jesus. It is that during this time in Gethsemane that will be fulfilled the prophetic word of Isaiah was, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is where Jesus is beginning to feel the burden of the curse in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane harkens back to another garden, the garden of Eden which was an enclosure that God had built. Eden was a place of bliss, a place of pleasure. That's what the word means. Delight. Paradise. Adam and Eve. Everything was good. Together in the garden. Walking with God. Enjoying perfect health and prosperity tilling the soil, tending to the perfect creation. The garden is the place of fertility. The trees were growing. The tree of life was there. There were herbs and vegetables. There were cattle and beasts and animals. It was an incredible place. And now Jesus has come to the garden of pressure of burden. Why? Because in the first garden, the garden of Eden, mankind in the person of Adam and Eve had disobeyed. They had gone against the will of God. They had failed. They had rebelled. They had fallen. They had sinned. Bringing sin into the world. And now, comes Christ to the garden of oppression, the pressing to deal with that sin. To deal with that sin. Jesus is now in the garden 
and he's beginning to bear the sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Here's where Jesus, like the scapegoat in the Old Testament sacrificial system, felt the pressure of the hand of the high priest laying upon his head the burden of the sins of the people. And now Jesus feels the pressure and the burden of the hand of God placing upon him the sins of the people and putting in front of him a cup of the wrath of God that he must drink to the dregs. And Christ in his humanity suffered. He knew what he was in for. He knew what the wrath of God entailed. Jesus did not have a frivolous view of the wrath of God. Most of us today do. Our view of the wrath of God is, oh, God's, just, he'll, God's not like that. He'll get over it. It's nothing to it. Jesus knew what God thought of a sinner. Jesus knew what God would do with a sinner. Jesus knew how God would treat someone who was laden with sin. And here he is beginning that process that Peter describes to us in his letter earlier. Says, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This is a Gethsemane. And Jesus dreads it. And just to sort of picture the helplessness, the carelessness, the lack of self-control of humanity, the failure of humanity there in his wake were sleeping, slumbering, snoring disciples incapable of praying and watching one hour and certainly incapable of doing anything about their sins. And so Jesus comes in this place, Gethsemane, and his hour now has come. Let me read for you how Paul spells this out in his letter to the Romans about what's going on in Gethsemane. Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, that's the penalty of sin, so death spread to all men, all humanity, because all sinned. Didn't say that all did their own individual sins, but it says here that in one man, the race sinned. You and I were born in sin. We were born into that condition into which Adam had fallen. And we inherit his guilt. We inherit his condemnation. And can we deny that we inherit his mortality? The soul that sins it shall die. That's what Christ is dealing with here. But listen to Paul continue. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The high priest had said rather casually and offhandedly at the hearing of Christ that eh, it's fitting that one man should die for the nation. He was minimizing it. The truth is he was preaching the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And if there's anybody that should have known the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it was the high priest of Israel in the days of Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that is the disobedience, the failure to do the will of God and to obey God of Adam, led to condemnation for all humanity. So one act of righteousness. And that's what Jesus is doing that night in the garden. He is doing in his humanity that act of righteousness, that, that surrendering himself to the sovereign will of God, motivated by love, conveyed by grace, slathered in mercy. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And that's what he's doing. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You know what justification says to us this morning? It says, you're not guilty. You're innocent. You're acquitted. No condemnation. We got this heavy sentence of guilt holding over us. We hear the death sentence that is read upon us. We see the ordinance that is nailed to the cross. It's been reversed. It's been canceled. It's been paid. It's been dealt with. It's been covered. It is finished. It's over. There's no condemnation. That's what justification says to us this morning. And this one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's how eternal life comes to the race. That's how eternal life comes to humanity. That says to us this morning that we receive as a free gift, the gift of eternal life. And this life is in his son, the only begotten son, the savior of Gethsemane. Do you hear him this morning? Do you obey him this morning? When he says, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, do you hear that as a casual invitation that you can just take it or leave it? Or do you hear that as a summons to come to the Savior for the salvation that is available nowhere else and that will reckon for you for all eternity? I have a favorite Song. My mother 
and her younger brother used to sing this as a duet back in Mississippi and Tennessee when I was oh, a preschooler. And I've loved this song all my life. It's written by the, the dean of the hymn writers of the Southern Baptist, B.B. McKinney. And uh, it just sort of tells the story. The, the song is Neath or Beneath the Old Olive Trees. Listen to the words. Beneath the stars of the night walk the Savior of light in a garden of dew-laden breeze where no light could be found. Jesus knelt on the ground and there he prayed neath the old olive trees. All the sin of the world on the Savior was hurled as he knelt in the garden alone. Hear his soul burdened plea, let this cup pass from me. Even so, not my will, thine be done. Neath the old olive trees, neath the old olive trees, went the Savior alone on his knees. Not my will, thine be done, cried the Father's own Son as he knelt neath the old olive trees. And as wonderful as those two stanzas are, the third stanza is my favorite. May my song ever be of the love proffered me by my Lord all alone on his knees. Praise his wonderful name, he who bore all my blame as he knelt neath the old olive trees. 